Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. I almost stepped on you there. Hello, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) This is episode 26, and we are interviewing composer and musician Anthony O'Toole. Anthony O'Toole is a composer out in California, and he has a Northern Virginia connection. He actually did his master's degree at George Mason University, which is where Stephen and I are currently getting our doctorate degrees. And we were able to sit down with Anthony and discuss three of his pieces in particular that all relate to the 19th century and early American brass bands. The first piece of music is titled A New Birth of Freedom and was written for brass ensemble with percussion and utilizes all original material and is inspired by President Lincoln's address at the Gettysburg Battlefield. The second piece of music that we'll hear is titled The Battle Cry of Freedom. It's based on George Frederick Root's tune, The Battle Cry of Freedom, but this is kind of an original composition inspired by the music based off of the original tune. The third piece of music is titled Butler's Blunders and is written for Civil War brass band instrumentation. Uh, It's all original material, much like the first piece, but utilizes kind of the the quick step genre that is known in the early American brass band 19th century uh, Civil War era time period. And it's kind of alluding to that earlier tradition, but it does use more modern harmonic language, meaning different uh, chords than they would have used in the past, and a little bit more uh, acrobatic leaps in the lead parts and some, some trickier rhythms. So we will get to hear all three of these pieces in their entirety. Uh, the New Birth of Freedom utilizes sampling, so it's an electronic recording, but the instruments sound really, really good. It almost sounds real. The second recording, The Battle Cry of Freedom, is live and is performed by the United States Marine Band, the President's Own, from Washington, D.C., and that recording's okay. No, I'm kidding. It's fantastic. It's amazing. You're going to love it. And then the final piece, Butler's Blunders, is rendered in MIDI format, so it sounds electronic and the instruments sound uh, a little on the fake side, not, not as realistic as the first piece in New Birth of Freedom, but... You get to hear all three of these compositions in their entirety, and we're really excited to show them to you. Yeah, this is a good uh, wide-ranging conversation, and I think it might be the first time we've had a composer on. I know a lot of our guests in the past um, arrange uh, music from this time period, but it was interesting to get a take uh, you know, from a composer who has used some historical melodies um, and is a big history buff, too. Uh, you know, and see how that influenced more modern uh, compositions that have come out recently. So we think you'll really enjoy this one. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, uh, there are a number of ways to support us. You can uh, subscribe uh, on whatever podcast platform you're listening. Also, our YouTube channel is growing, uh, which is always great to see. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as well. We also have a Patreon page that you can check out. Um, that just goes to help cover some of the back end costs uh, to produce the show. And we have a Teespring store uh, where you can get some merch and we'll have all that stuff linked up on our website, eabbpodcast.com. So we hope you'll check that stuff out. And without further ado, here is the interview with composer Anthony O'Toole. Great. Anthony O'Toole, thanks so much for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast today. How are you doing? 
Good, good. Thank you for having me. Great. Yeah. Happy to have you here. Uh, we usually start uh, with each guest with some musical background. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm, I'm a professional composer and still a gigging musician. I'm a percussionist, but I live out here in Los Angeles and I do a lot of uh diverse kinds of work. I do anything from orchestration to primarily mostly my own composition. I am a resident composer with the Carson Symphony here in Los Angeles and I'm also the staff arranger of the Southern California Brass Ensemble. So I feel like that's the pertinent part of my story or of who <laughs> I am at least. So yeah. I'm also a lot, I've written a lot of music for concert band and uh, a lot of chamber music and concertos for brass instruments a lot. Yeah, awesome. Something that I, that I was kind of curious about and would be good background for, for our listeners that may not know any composers. When you're uh, <laughs> getting into, you know, starting a new piece of music or when you're when you're beginning a new project, would you say that most of your projects come from... Uh, somebody approaching you with a commission right off the bat, or do you sometimes kind of write something and then and then sell it after the fact? How does that kind of process work for you? That's a good question. I get it a lot, so I'm practiced in answering it. Um, <laughs> but that's that's a good question because people want to know how they engage a composer and how a composer engages back with them. And um, the the simple answer is it, it happens different every time, a little bit a little bit different every time. But most of the pieces I write, uh, thankfully, are commissioned by people, which, you know, somebody pays for the creation of something, which is always nice. Um, more, more so for me that I know it's going to be performed afterwards. And like, that helps right. me shape how I compose the work because I actually, I'm a, per I'm a people person in general. And, and knowing exactly who I'm writing for uh, is a big factor in what I write. And because um, I try to be appropriate for age and for skill level, because I want, you know, because I'm a I'm a composer and they're paying me to do something for them. And I'm basically like a plumber or any other kind of craftsman. They, they expect a certain job from me and to make them sound good or to give them something they can do or something that challenges them or, or whatever sparks the creation of new repertoire, because there's thousands of pieces out there. And, and for brass instruments, there's maybe hundreds but you know the repertoire is not as long and, and diverse and you know there's not as many of the older composers writing a tuba concerto or a euphonium concerto or bass trombone or or anything like that i'm sure you understand what i mean and um mm -hmm. most people reach out to me because they want to commission a piece from me which is something that i've created which is always an honor that somebody will give me even a dollar to make something for them <laughs> um and so the process typically includes them reaching out to me, but sometimes I write pieces on my own volition and I, um, and sometimes I find people to perform them after that. But I usually don't like this. If I really have an idea burning in my head, just itching to, you know, be vomited out onto sheet music. Um, then I just, I just do it. Like I don't sit around waiting for someone to tell me to do something. And that's sort of been a trend throughout my entire career. I, I know I had a lot of great teachers, mm -hmm. but I, I didn't sit around waiting for them to tell me to listen to Mahler or go listen to, you know, Bach or go study Haydn symphonies. Like I was doing that on my own, you know, motivation. So mm -hmm. I, I think, I don't know if that fully answers the question, but there's, oh, yeah. 
yeah that's, that, that's a huge aspect of it is is I don't, I don't know if it's a mysterious process but like some people don't a lot a lot of, not everybody commissions a composer to write a piece of music and and that's not something that has to be so formal and only for the best musicians you know there's composers all around us if you especially if you go to a school mm -hmm. there's people there that even if they're not studying composition they're interested in composition and and it it doesn't hurt the composer or the performer to interact with each other and to, you know, make new music. It doesn't have to be published. It doesn't have to be, you know, the next, you know, Warhorse concerto that everybody plays or the next successful band piece or orchestra piece. It's uh, it's all about creating something and then bringing something to life. And, and that whole process where the composer and the musician or conductors or whatever, they're all involved in that entire like cyclical process of creating music were you also cultivating a, a joy for learning history also or was history kind oh, of a, yeah. something that that came later on uh my grandfather would like one of my favorite people in the world like he would just he was a simple guy but he, he liked to learn all the time like he was always reading newspapers and and watching tv like he was a sports fan. Like he loved baseball and I mm -hmm. love baseball. And I just, I had memories of watching that stuff with him and everything, but he would always watch the history channel too. And I've always like thought that was way more interesting at a certain age after I was, you know, over cartoons, but not that I was ever over them, but <laughs> I started to like to, my brain started to turn on, you know, as a, as a kid, I stopped, stopped being like six or seven years old and about eight years old, I was watching the history and this is old history channel before it was yeah. all aliens yeah, yeah. and um, back when it was <laughs> history yeah back when it was all world war ii all the time <laughs> yeah true but um but yeah i used to watch that all the time and it was so fascinating because when you're a kid you have no sense of like fluidity of time that there was that was there was thousands of generations before you and hopefully there'll be thousands after you and mm -hmm. and that um stuff happened before you existed and it's sort of uh you know a way of stepping out of your own self and sort of being aware of what's what's happened and what's happening and all that stuff and awareness is probably the most valuable attribute anybody can have even as adults yeah. is you know and that's sort of the never stop learning kind of attitude too it's it's the idea that you know stuff is changing whether you acknowledge it or not and you, do you want to be relevant or do you want to be ne not knowing what's going on and you yeah, know yeah for sure so so yeah i had i had people around me that provoked sort of my natural interest in history or, or got me in, exposed at least to things that i didn't know before if you if you start to develop your entire human being and your entire mind and and figure yourself out then you can start to figure out composition or music or whatever discipline you choose for yourself but for finding me it was like i like history too i, I like mathematics i like you know logic problems like the way my brain is wired like i'm a i'm a problem solver like i see things and i want to take it apart and understand it to me at least it's intoxicating to to listen and watch people that know a lot about something because it it stokes that interest in me mm -hmm. and i realize how genuine and true that is and that somebody can love something and, and not be like inhibited by what most people might think about their enjoyment of something which is it was another thing it's just like to be uh, like unabashed in what you're interested in something that i'm really excited about with this episode is having the the chance to exposing a lot of people that are interested in 
uh, you know, 19th century music and history and bringing all these things mm -hmm. together and exposing them to your music. One of your, the pieces of music that you wrote is called A New Birth of Freedom, and it was written for brass and percussion. Uh, and it's all uh, original material and utilizes mm -hmm. your, your unique voice and callbacks to other voices and stuff. I was wondering, can you give us a, a little bit of a background on that piece of music? Yeah, um, I wrote that piece maybe in 2012 or 2012. And um, there was a, I think it, I wrote it originally, nobody commissioned me to write that piece. It was mm -hmm. just something I had a little seed of an idea in my head that I, I always had on the back burner, but never sat down and actually flushed out. But yeah, I wrote this piece and, I, and it sat there. Nobody asked me to write it. I just wrote it because I, I wanted to get it out, at least in a draft. And then I added percussion for it. Somebody did commission me. They, they found the piece. Um, and he, and he asked me if he could, if I could write it for their school's brass ensemble. So I did. And, um, that's the version you hear. And like, I, um, it's written for the, a full, a fuller complement of brass. And then with the two percussionists added, um, and it's, yes, it's all original material. Although I compose it around, an inspired element, which is the, you know, the Gettysburg Address, one of like the fame, most famous two minutes of oration in American history. And, um, and it's, it is such a, like an emblematic piece of oration in America is just like, they, they make actors like memorize it. And it's just like, mm -hmm. because it's, it's a sort of a Lincoln was smart in writing that is because he was alluding backwards to an old Greek address where he follows the same form. I forget the exact um, speech that he gives, but it's just like, um, it's a, it's a general gives this speech back in Greek antiquity in which he like, he gives the same sort of premise because he's coming to a battlefield after, after a gruesome battle and has to create some sort of elegy for the masses and explaining or trying to, validate what happened so mm -hmm. he he starts by acknowledging the dead and then and states their you know call to action which is why these people died and sort of memorializing these people and saying that like what we say here doesn't matter but what they actually did here is what actually matters and and this thing it sort of you know echoes this older speech and that's that's sort of why they taught history back then mm -hmm. is just like it was considered one of the the main things to, to study antiquity because that's like the most prized knowledge or at least they thought back in the 19th century they thought you know the, the the peak of human thinking was not like these german guys who are existing in the same time as us like that are thinking like freud and breuer and like all these people who are really trying to like and, and you know all the the philosophers you know from from marx on to trotsky and everyone else but um the people they admired were those greek philosophers and they were and so Lincoln being an educated man, even though he came from relative poverty, what he was, he was educated in that stuff too. And, and he realized history was one of the greatest subjects you can study is, is that because it's, it's cyclical history. It, it, the same things keep happening because the same human beings exist on this earth. They keep making the same mistakes and they keep having the same kinds of successes because of the same reasons. And I was saying before, everything's kind of interconnected. If you start to pull yourself back from one particular thing, you start to see there's a net or a web of mm -hmm. things that happen for a reason. And there's a logic, even though the world is very 
illogical at times it seems and people do things that don't make sense but you know for sure so so yeah this piece i was talking about <laughs> the piece uh for brass uh the gettysburg piece so yeah and, and i that's that piece doesn't get por- performed all the time but mm-hmm. um I'm proud of it. And it does use original material. I, I didn't borrow anything, but um, as a composer, you sort of learn certain tools and like, especially if you're going to write for stage or, or any drama or others. So whenever you're subordinate to a, a, to a narrative or some sort of preordained story, um, you have to learn how to fit into that. And like sometimes, and even if you just want to write a programmatic piece or just a piece with elements of program like this piece, it's just, it's not a literal transcription or like emotional, like play by play John Madden style of just like what's going on in the, uh, yeah. in, in the piece. Like it, it takes the, the character of the speech and like the, like the, uh, the austere quality of it and like the, um, the emotional weight of it. And it's just sort of, encapsulates that in music and and i use that through using certain intervals like open intervals and like copeland did this too like i'm not an original thinker in this mm-hmm. it's just like you you listen to lincoln portrait or anything that's sort of like americana and he sort of uses those open intervals is it's like you where do you find the open intervals in the brass instruments in in the string instruments like all the things that are you know emblematic of american music or at least at that point so like unlike a lincoln portrait where uh, the music, you know, has the the narration of the the piece behind or the the speech mm-hmm. behind it. Mm-hmm. You kind of already answered the question a little bit by saying that it was that your composition is more inspired by the spirit of the speech that was given. Yeah, the piece can be performed with narration. I do have narration included in the score. Okay, um, but mostly I put that there so that like it hits certain markers in terms of like this is why and i do that in battle cry of freedom too um which we'll discuss also but i put these little parts of the phrases because you know it music needs context a lot of the time is like it's not always abstract and you'd sort of need to let people understand what what you're getting at and like and and that's great because the score never has to be seen by the listener like it's all just information for the performer and like Mm -hmm. like i can i can put in a certain passage from it um like put in no man will be a slave like in and like or whatever word from the battle cry of freedom at a certain point so that it people okay okay this part is like this portion of the text and like mm-hmm. and that it all that i'm not just doing this willy-nilly like there is a methodology to what i'm doing yeah, which definitely. makes people respect what you're doing a little bit more is because they they know like there's a process that you're going through and that you're not just putting notes on a page that is just like there's a clear methodical um connection between what you're writing and what you're trying to say and that mm-hmm. the music and that reminds us that the music is just a tool in the greater thing of communication which is like communicate music is just one way we communicate to people it's just like a, a purely emotional aesthetic experience yeah. not a literal um verbal or written communication and so like there's there's great things you can do with music that you can't do with the written language or oration and so music in this case is going to fill in the cracks of what lincoln couldn't put into words or glossify or put into terminology or, whatever, or however you want to say it is it's like there's there's certain emotion that he could never 
adequately portray mm-hmm. but he that and that's why he didn't speak for very long the, this featured speaker went on for an hour or two or whatever yeah. but yeah. he's just like there's not much i can add to this like it happened and you know his own guilt with the whole war but his his duty to want to to maintain the union and by all means necessary and and we're glad he did mm-hmm. but um but yeah it's just that music helps us fill in those cracks between what we can say and what we can do and because there's this whole other dimension of existence this whole realm of emotions that we have done a very poor job of of actually terming a lot of, of glossifying and and creating the adequate terms for it. i mean we've, we've tried our best and we have a lot of great words and a lot of great poetry and stuff like that but music still trumps all of those methods and it's and it hits right to the core of things without even having to say a word sometimes but yeah definitely. but so th- I, this I, piece this piece is sort of supposed to, i say i call it eulogy for a wounded nation and that's the subtitle not the official title but mm-hmm. that helps people understand that what i'm going for there this is not like this is not you know action music for the battle this is not like a super sad piece but there's there's a character to it that is elegiac and and it's about um and it's and it feels heavy at times it just like it sort of in embodies the the wounded heart or just like grief and all that stuff but there's exalted moments in there there's moments that sort of echo the war or the battle um the the martial aspect of it there's you know a drum thing and there's like these little little echoes of things and so that's what i in my in my attempts to make a piece that even comes closer holds a candle to these words it's just like mm-hmm. for me it was an exercise it's just to say let me take this piece of real american history and try and make something out of it that you know maybe somebody hasn't made before
Cool. So that was your piece, A New Birth of Freedom. Another one we wanted to talk about today was the battle cry of freedom. Um, so maybe a good place to start with this is because you um, you use the tune, The Battle Cry of Freedom. Um, what's, the, what's the background and the context of that tune for listeners who may not be super familiar with it? George Frederick Root, who wrote a lot of really popular songs, not just Civil War based, but at that point he was pretty much the songwriter in the United States. I mean, um, he, he wrote that and both sides of the, con uh, the Confederacy and the Union both had different lyrics for it. And, um, and it has a couple different stanzas and, and verses and, and a refrain. Um, and it's sort and musically, he wasn't too complex in terms of music. I mean, the music he wrote, it was more about, he was like a songwriter. He was just like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever pop artist <laughs> now, like he was just a songwriter. Just like Gershwin was a songwriter and just like yeah. they, there's different kinds of music. And, and this was part of the, the folk element of American music, mm -hmm. which was more predominant because we did not have like a classical voice yet. So American, American music was folk music. And, and the band tradition comes out of that is that it, it largely serviced folk music and, and ceremonial music. Um, and this is before jazz or any indigenous American sound that we created ourselves. Um, so this piece utilizes that song and and I know I know a good bit and another songwriter Stephen Foster from this time you might know his beautiful dreamer and and other songs but um those two were like the the kings of pop music back then that was like mm -hmm. um so so I I studied both both of these songwriters and and all the other early Americans like Will William Billings and stuff like that people that wrote the earliest American music and, and then the, the lyric harp music, the shape note music, if you know the Southern like gospel singing style. Um, so this is all paints the picture of American musical history, which is, which is just as diverse, even more diverse because in European musical history, you only have the white guys uh, and, you know, you only have the Germanic tradition and the classical tradition and, and that kind of music making. But in America, you have, you know, a, a diaspora mixing of all these different musical traditions. And it, it allows for the creation of these new things. Like I was saying about Italian bandmasters coming into America and, and German musicians and bringing their brass instruments and their kind of music into the Americas, mm -hmm. not just America, not, not just the United States. Um, so this piece is, you know, the, if I talk shop in terms of like what the P the, the song is constructed, it's in typical song form with verse and, and in a, a refrain it's, it's what they call strophic, which is the same tune with new lyrics. And then, um, so it's very easy for the composer. You, you just write a tune and then you just make words that go along with it. Yeah. And, and that's one way of songwriting is, is you could have the words and think of the melody later, or you could think of the melody and then add the words, or you could be a real composer of like the really good ones are thinking multidimensionally. They're thinking they're playing 3d chess. They're, yeah. they're looking at the lyrics and the music and how the music affects the lyrics and how the lyrics affect the music and which has demands on the other. And when one has to bow and one has to stand and which one is more important. Um, so 
So he, he was a good composer in that sense as he knew how to set the words and he had certain intricacies as a composer in terms of his intervallic and harmonic language. He, he would only use primary function chords. You know, you have your one, four and five and then maybe the two and maybe the, uh, you know, the six and he, and maybe the three sometimes, but it was really just one, 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 five, 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 one, 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 five, like this open, yeah. very predictable harmonic language. Right. And then a, 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 like a, a sort of lilting sort of fanciful melody. And a lot of it is bum, 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 bum. He was a big fan of the bum, 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 the dotted eighth, 16th. And then bum, 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 bum. He would do that in a lot of things. These open sort of like bugle call hmm. intervals, bum, 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 bum. Yeah. And I do, I start the piece with that. Is this like, because I want to sort of, I don't want to just jam us right into the start of the piece. <laughs> I, yeah. I want the piece to just, to feel like it comes out of history, you know, like that this thing had existed already and we're reminiscing on it. So the beginning is sort of this thing, this maybe you're on the battlefield or something is like in the morning and there's just this fog and it's sort of, you're sort of transported back to it. You know, I, I've been to like several battle sites in the civil war and there's sort of an, an energy or an aura about being there is cause you know, a lot of people died there and like, some heavy things happened there and there's just this preface of there being history there and yeah. and there's still there's still guts and blood in the grass and the soil and like hmm. there is that energy there and like um you, you you get that feeling especially like when i went to gettysburg in fifth grade i was just like wow like this place has an energy to it in terms of like you know and because maybe because that's i know what happened there it's just like it's it's all about perspective too is what what means nothing to somebody could mean the entire world to someone else and yeah, and 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 you bring that into listening to music too just to to be tangential again is just um when you listen to music you're bringing your whole world with you and, and your entire understanding of everything and that's what shapes what you think the music is about because you can hear whatever you want to hear based on what you have heard because your your brain is a computer and it's constantly downloading new software from learning things and being exposed to stuff. You know, you have the hardware, but then you're, you're putting all this new software, which is new programs and new, you know, yeah. systems into your brain so you can better understand all of the data that's around you in the world. But, um, but yeah, this piece, I'll get back to it. Um, this piece, it, it sort of starts like how I was saying, it just sort of comes out of the dusk and it, mm -hmm. it comes back to life. And you hear those distant, da -dum, da -dum, those open fifths right there. And I, I use all fifths there and then one and five chords, but then in clever combinations with each other. So you have them overlapping each other and then they create these sort of ethereal sounds. Um, but you get this very distinct you know, echoes of like charge calls, da dum, da dum, and like all those bugle calls you hear on a battlefield, but so mm -hmm. distant. Like they, like they were kind, they were there a long time ago, but their their essence still lingers. You know, mm -hmm. and that's the beginning of, of the entire setting of this. And so you see, I'm already on the course of a more poetic translation of this song. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I'm not cool. going for the for the rousing, you know, march style. Um, sing-along style <laughs> setting of of the song yeah, yeah. you know i i did this piece for the marine band and it was part of my the process of auditioning for their staff arranger 
and mm-hmm. and I did and I did this just to have the Marine Band play my music. Like I I could care less if I got the job or not. But I I was I was like, wow, they they don't have this changing of the guards, so to speak, at the at the Marine Band very often. Yeah. So I was like, right. this is a this is a little little chunk of history, and I'll throw my hat in the ring and and be a part of it and just engage with things happening around me. Is the recording that we're going to listen oh, to yeah. of the Marine Band uh, a recording session that they did, or is that them just reading the recording kind of session? Thing? Okay, nice. Um, so that's that's down at the barracks of the Navy Yard in their little headquarters. Mm-hmm. They have their own studio recording. They have studio. They have recording engineers that are enlisted men and they they work for that you know that's their regiment or their you know company or whatever little division of the service they're in that's where their assignment is and and they have both enlisted men and they have you know the musicians of the marine band which are not in not enlisted they are officers but they don't go through the training Mm -hmm. they don't go to paris island or anything like that like regular marines do Mm -hmm. so they kind of get shit for that for the other marines but the marines do respect the musicians so highly because they are the best like they're arguably one of the best um armed forces band out there and marines are all about being the best and when you have the best musicians they'll give them some ribbing about not being like not having gone through basic training but they do respect musicians and i think that's true of of all the service bands is because they they are incredible players of you know yeah they they could be in any symphony orchestra but they're they're serving their country you know giving us the rare treat of an incredible a-class band like you don't get to hear bands like that very often because the bulk of american bands are in the educational system in public schools is you know they're all in middle school and high schools and and it's a real treat to and like i i run into this because i've written a dozen band pieces and and seldom do the big bands like marine band play it but it's always a treat to go in there and and hear it and you sort of have to tell yourself before this is not normal like <laughs> did, like don't you can't expect this from any other band in america other than the other armed forces bands and the dallas wind symphony and a couple others yeah, yeah. but um but yeah this piece and it's and and i do this the same thing as i did in the new birth of freedom i put the quotes or the certain stanzas or or lines that i i really resonated with that inspired that section because i i take the the song out of order i don't put it in the order that's just assigned by the songwriter just mm-hmm. from a piecemeal kind of assigning words to a melody is it's like i i keep the melody central and like you can always recognize the melody in the setting but um but I, I take a spin on it because each stanza has some is addresses certain different things and different moods. And I I sort of make the more music more noble. And then right before the last last big push, there I do portray the battle. There is a huge brass section and the woodwinds flurry around and there's a harp glisses and all this stuff that becomes more energetic and and sort of exciting mm-hmm. is just like and almost terrifying but just that's that's the actual battle right before we come into that big you know if it was marching band it's just a big company front yeah, like yeah. this is the final statement of it mm-hmm. and i had the descending bass line like and it's just every little thing in there every like tool that a composer can use i like i pull all the stops at the end and i have you know 
in addition because they had the brass bands back then and but they also had you know piccolos and like d flat piccolos and all this different stuff back then too that would mm-hmm. would play along with the brass bands so at the end that last refrain i have these piccolo sort of ornaments over the entire thing it's this like on top of it in thirds and like all yeah. and it's harmonized it's like mm-hmm. so and that's like doubled and, and i get the full or like the full orchestral or band treatment so i have like xylophone and all the woodwinds like i can double that and fill it out more so that it has a chance of being heard against the brass and all this stuff mm-hmm. so this this setting is is more of a composer's treatment rather than an arranger's treatment and maybe that's mm-hmm. why i didn't get the job but mm-hmm. um but i i took that as an opportunity to have the marine band play my music and to write a piece for them and that piece exists whether I won the position or not, yeah. to me, it was a success. And that was just my, in my mind, what was the success of that? It's like, I went into that already succeeding by even getting to be in the same room as the Marine band and to let it, the, the day I walked in there and they were playing my music before I walked in, hmm. I was like, Oh, I had like a feeling in my body. I had never felt in my life before. And like, yeah. it, it was just years and years of me putting in work at composition to have that one or two rewarding moments here and there that yeah. make all of that worth it. It's just like, why do musicians like you and me and like, why do we sit in a room for hours? And this looks like, cause we're addicted to that moment after we finish a piece where we're just like, we were just a part of this aesthetic experience that will never happen again mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is you get from the, the joy and like the satisfaction of playing music. Some people like the competition of it and there's nothing wrong with that too. It's just like there, there are musicians out there that are just like, you know, you know major league baseball players or, or basketball players. Like they are the best at the reflexology and the physiology, the physical, the physicality of playing an instrument. And it's just like, even Paganini was like that. He was like the LeBron James of violin. Like he was just so, <laughs> he was just so good at, at making that thing do what he wanted to do and he was and and that's what we're in awe of even if you don't even like basketball or baseball or whatever you can watch somebody who's really good at something and go wow that takes a lot of work and not everybody's putting in a lot of work into stuff so we admire when we see somebody who actually goes through all that blood sweat and tears of of getting good at something because a lot of us want to be good at something and we even spend our whole lives and never get really good at it. Mm -hmm. But it's that struggle that's more important than this triumph we have built enough in our head. Like if, you know, what's more rewarding to you is, is it that one second or do you, do you get enjoyment from the entire process? And for me, I'm a process guy. Like I enjoy the process of composition. Is this, is this starting a new sheet of paper or a new piece of music? Like, that is the th- most thrilling moment to me is starting over again. Cause you don't get mm-hmm. that in life. Like you don't get to just start your life over again, but you do get to start music over again. Every piece you play is just like a, a new thing. And like yeah. in, in life, you don't get that. You, even if you get married five times, like you don't get, a, <laughs> you, you don't get that new feeling of it again. You know, you, cause people, people try to do that. They just like, well, I'll just keep getting married to a new person. And like, then I'll, I'll get that, that addicting feeling of newness, you know, but it's never the same. It just never hits the same way. But with music, you do get that. You get to play in a new group. You get to play with new people. You get to play new music and new repertoire. And it's just like, that's what's addic- That's what I think is addicting about music. And it's just like, you get to do this with like 
if you're in a band with 60 other people, 70 other people, and even more fun can be playing it with like a dozen people, like in, in Civil War brass bands, like the recreationist brass bands, you get just to hang out with 12 guys that are your friends and, and play music and you get to be around the other nerds that are like you. And then you just, you feel like you're less alone in the world because you like the same things as somebody else likes and it makes you feel less weird. And, you know, you get to be around people that embrace what you do and, and nurture it. <laughs> I think you're going to gain a, a bunch of new fans by by listening to this. We're really excited to, to share this with people that may not have heard it yet. But this is uh, the battle cry of freedom with the United States Marine Band.
I'm impressed by this battle cry of freedom. Like I listened to it not only just because the Marine band played it, <laughs> but because I wrote it in about seven hours because they, oh, wow. they, they give it to you as an assignment for, oh, right. for overnight. Yikes. Yeah. And, uh, and this sounds like a dog ate my homework kind of thing, but that was the day my computer decided to crap out and just like, <laughs> so I had to, I had to go on Facebook and ask people if they could let me borrow their computer with finale on it. Wow. And Kevin Smith, another percussionist at GMU, um, he, he's like, I, I'll give it to you, man. I, I live right across the street from campus on the North side. And uh, he, he, he came over to my house and he, uh, he gave me his laptop completely trusting me and just said, here you go. And, and then I sat there on this, this computer could like barely handle finale on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so thankfully, like I had sketched out the entire thing before I even touched finale. Mm-hmm. But right. so I wrote, I wrote that entire piece in about four hours. And then it took me mm-hmm. two hours to put the music into finale. And then I had to make all the parts and get it to the librarian at the Marine band in time. And uh, that, that was such a hectic experience, but I grew so much from it because I had to make solutions, you know, I, yeah. there, there was all these problems more than there should have been. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I somehow came on top of yeah. it all. And it's just like, yeah. yeah. And that's what people care about. Somebody will buy you a drink in a bar because you can share a story of struggle with them. Like you don't have to win at the end, but people will relate to that struggle and they go, well, I'll buy that guy a beer. He's out there trying. Like, I respect that. Like I'm out there trying, you know, I don't know. How and like, I don't know. I don't know. Are going to relate to a, yeah, I, I was Marine to, band or, audition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trying to write a <laughs> civil war tune for the Marine band. <laughs> So the two previous pieces that we've talked about so far <clears throat> with uh, A New Birth of Freedom being an original composition with all original material and then uh, The Battle Cry of Freedom, which was like original composition, but based off of, uh, you know, uh, pre-existing melody, yeah, yeah, yeah pre-existing right. song. Uh, this third piece that we're going to talk about, uh, you've titled Butler's Blunders. And you can maybe get into a little bit about your miniatures project and stuff. But this piece is, for our listeners, as, as the quick overview of it, is original composition, original material. But its instrumentation is for that of a Civil War brass band. And uh, it draws on the historical influence and inspiration that, that we've been talking about with all these previous pieces, too. Can you give us a little bit more information on this piece, Butler's Blunders, for for early American brass band? Yeah. Um, so the, so the Butler aspect is uh, general Benjamin Butler, who is uh, like the, the governor basically during wartime of like new Orleans. Um, so at the beginning of the civil war, not to get too much into the history, but I think they'll appreciate this and correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, so at the beginning of the civil war, um, the the highest ranking general of the union side was like um what's his name winfield scott who was an old carryover from you know the in the american indian wars and the mexican-american war um so he was an old man at the time but he he devised this um the anaconda plan which was how they cut off the confederacy via the sea with the navy um so they and they tried they didn't do it perfectly but they did block a, a large port 
a portion of trade going in and out of the South, which was a huge factor in, in winning the war, which is cutting off their economic arm, mm-hmm. not just, you know, fighting the military arm of the Confederacy. So, so they capture New Orleans and, and a major offensive during the Civil War is the Mississippi campaign is, is, is taking back the Mississippi, which cuts the Confederacy in half. The Texas part gets split away from the rest of it. And um, so they take New Orleans, which is a huge port city there, and it controls the mouth of the Mississippi. And uh, they put Benjamin Butler there, who's not a terribly competent uh, general in in terms of his field command. So they say, well, we'll just give you this sort of desk job of of watching over the city of New Orleans. And he he was considered such a terrible leader and such a, like a dictatorial um you know governor of this of this city and everyone despised him and he just constantly had shortcomings and failures and just like even looking at him he's just like a failure of a man and like so i just thought it was a funny thing it's just like a little tidbit of history you know that was in my head and i was just like well, let me make a piece out of this it's just like because every general and officer had their own little quick steps and stuff like that mm-hmm. during the civil war i go well what would his sound like <laughs> so i make i make it kind of comical it's just like it's in a typical quick step it has the the rhythm like boom ba, boom ba, boom ba, da, ba, ba, boom ba, da, boom boom so mm-hmm. i i take these components which are historical and like accurate and like then I weave a new piece around it using this, these few little fragments of, of authenticity. And then I, I give it my spin on what I do with all that stuff. Cause I don't write it just a traditional melody or just like a traditional, you know, predictable piece of music that was just for marching. I, this is for listening. So, mm-hmm. um, so I service the listener, not just the function of, of being for marching and, and moving. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. that's that's the, the, the duplicity of the of the Civil War band is that they had a very strict military function and they also could play music for leisure too. Is this mm-hmm. um, so they had to serve a purpose first and foremost? Is this why did why did the Union buy all those brass instruments and, and make all those regimental bands and everything? Is this is they needed these bands to communicate on the field? Like going back to Macedonia, they were using bugles to maneuver troops on the field and. This, um, mm-hmm. So the Union Army invested in music is just like also it affects morale of the soldiers, which is you might not be able to give them food all the time, but you could at least give them music, which was <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. which was another thing in, in both sides of the army is just like su- supply lines and, and access to food and shoes. Gettysburg happened because they were looking for shoes yeah. and they went up to Harris Harrisburg where they thought they had a shoe depository. Um, and in the South, they had a shoe depository in Atlanta that could have given shoes to the entire Confederate army, but they didn't. These merchants would just sit there and like be war profiteers and, and not let these, like they had these goods and they didn't have the sense of patriotism, you know? They, yeah, yeah, yeah. they wanted to benefit from the South winning the war, but they didn't want to contribute to it. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, um, it's just, and that's why it, that's, yeah, that's, that's why it failed ultimately. Is this, 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 pipe dream but um i'm sure any southern listeners are gonna listen to me and, and hate me for that but it is it's just like a failed poor idea but um so so yeah this butler's blunders like i i do this thing every year at least for the last three years called the month of miniatures in may and in in and for the month before may i just put a post on facebook and i say 
name a combination of instruments and I'll write a piece a day in the month of May for um, whatever you suggest. I'll find the ones that are the most challenging. And, and like, I'm not just going to write, you know, a violin cello duet, like or something simple that like has been done before. I was just like, mm-hmm. let me use this as an, as a opportunity. No one's given me and just make my own opportunity and say, okay, let me give myself a, a yearly challenge where I have to do something completely absurd. And people People, as you know how Facebook is, the mo- if you ask for answers, the most ones you'll get are the wrong ones. People just like, <laughs> it's just trolling and being funny and like they, and people put down crazy stuff. Like I had people put down mariachi band. I did that one this year. People put down um, elementary music class. Like, so you have like, you know, shakers and, and orf instruments or, or recorders. So this was recorders and like triangle and shakers and stuff like that. So I wrote a piece for that, but it's just, and Butler's Blunders was one of those too. One of my friends from college, Alex Swackhammer plays in a uh, civil war brass band and he's, and he just wrote civil war brass band. And I was like, okay, it's not, it's not even the craziest thing that's being recommended to me. But, um, but I was just like, okay, well, what would I do with this? And I, I knew a little bit about brass band, but then I went and looked through like IMSLP and all these like public resources. And they have like old bandmasters manuals of like, you can look and see how they describe how they arrange and write for the band and like what the instruments are and, and like what the functions of the instruments are and like what the score is set up. And so I looked for that to research how it, how it looks. And like, I, I came across, I came across this stuff and I figured out, okay, I'll write for the, you know, the E flat coronets and then the altos, and the tenor the tenors and the bass horns like so that's what i wrote for and then drums with it mm-hmm. and um and so i wrote this piece and i was like okay i have all these limitations here i have civil war brass band i have these four staffs of brass instruments i can work with and they have to pretty much stay in a certain within certain lines you can't you know you know write a clark study on mm-hmm. on the trumpet and have it played along with it but um but you can give them you can put the two middle voices on like chords and then a bass note on the bottom and then you get these very simple chord backgrounds which is pretty much how they wrote all the civil war tunes just like everyone was in homophonic rhythm they would all play the same rhythm or they would have a simple accompaniment package because these a lot of these musicians were not incredible musicians they were just they were kids or just men and they were just handed instruments and say learn how to play these things and it's just like they were just regular people mm-hmm. from like whatever community or back in the day every town had a band like and then that band enlisted with the with the soldiers so you mm-hmm. got to bring that with you so mm-hmm. um so yeah the what i did with it was like i'll write a quick step i'll write a a march for this officer this the worst one i could think of and i'm like there's no short there's no shortage of finding bad officers in the civil war because you're you're in a you're in a time where just rich kids and like people of importance in the society got to just be officers um so you have a lot of really terrible people like um the south is only lucky because they got some of the good ones at the start uh, and where they lacked in manpower and like and all like the logistics of war and supplies and weapons and stuff like that. And even uniforms. Um, they, they had a good officers, at least at the beginning, which is why they had success and they weren't afraid to attack. So it was a completely different means of why they were in the war. It's just like, yeah. 
yeah. a lot for both sides they were just something fun to do they thought it would be like a summer war and they would just yeah. go and hang out and like go get to leave their town for once in their life and then it turned into this four plus year thing yeah. and they're like well i didn't sign up for this and but that's how that's how it was but the the, the south was more likely to attack because lee general lee who sided with his own state rather than going with the union um he he's like well i know how the army works i was in the mexican war i was in the indian wars i know how their officers work i know how all these west point new new west point graduates all think how they're taught and um and he got to have you know longstreet and all these other guys that were the teachers at west point Mm -hmm. and they were on the southern sides you have like the stacked faculty of west point you know working for the wrong side you know yeah. in history's judgment but um but at least they knew how to use artillery and how to attack and to create you know do all this stuff of of warfare mm-hmm. but uh the north was just full of hesitance and they didn't they didn't want to attack you know they just sat back and uh they went through several if not dozens of commanding officers you have you know burnside and 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 Meade and all these people. Um, and so, so all of these officers, like in their regiments and companies and, and battalions, like the bands would have like a special piece for them. So like what I said, like I, I wrote one for Butler. I, I couldn't find if Butler had his own, but no. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I was just, um, that's the, that's the main impetus of the piece is that I, I was, I was given this parameter to work within and I did, and then I wrote a piece. I just say, how do I take a spin on this? This is, this is a piece for Civil War band in a modern era. You go, how do I make a successful piece out of this? Is you do, you work within the confines of what you're working with. Is this like, this is what they're used to playing. You can't throw a wild curveball at them and, and give them something completely different. It's just like, cause then it's just gonna sound like crap. And as a composer, one you want to sound good and if you write something that's that you know they can't play you're going to sound bad no matter how good the piece is and then two you're servicing the musicians you don't want to make them sound bad it's just like it's so it's a twofold thing it's just like it's it's about making everyone look and sound as good as they can and like to give something that's going to be a fruitful effort that I think is interesting with with this piece in particular you talked about how it has all the authentic influence of it with the the instrumentation and the elements mm-hmm. of a quick step and stuff 
but then you know listening to it side by side with a a quick step that would have been written in like the 1850s or 60s you know there's definitely some melodic rhythmic elements or some harmonic language that is definitely yes. you know modern and definitely your your voice kind of thing and is there any interest for you personally to ever try to recreate something from a certain time period like i know we all grow up making you know Bach chorales and stuff in in theory mm -hmm. one and two but like would you ever try to i don't know water down some of the harmonic language or something as an exercise to try to create like a, a piece of music from the the 19th century brass band or is that not really something for you that that's that appealing Oh, that's wildly appealing to me is this, I learned how to compose by stepping in the footsteps other people have already taken. Like, like I, I started composition by just learning how to imitate other composers and then absorbing from those composers what I liked the most about them. It's just like, cause like Wagner is revered highly by composers, not for who he was, but is the music he wrote is highly influential. Mm -hmm. But, um, but if, if there was a, fast forward button on a live concert of Wagner, I would be pushing it all the time. <laughs> it's because he spends so much time working up to these wonderfully juicy moments, but then there's just, he just spends 15 minutes in a C major arpeggio. Like, and I was mm -hmm. like, I, nobody has the time for that. It's, and, <laughs> but that, that's a testament to his personality. Like he was an egomaniac, this like little Napoleonic hmm. Napoleon complex, like, person with anger for so many different people and like envy and he was such mm -hmm. a such a terrible person but like he wrote some influential music because that was the nature of western music at the time yeah i don't want to write a piece exactly like wagner like I, I could know how to do that because i've sat there and lived in his pieces before and like i've learned how he writes a piece and what his process was and the techniques and everything and his personal intricacies of how he communicates with music so i could and like that's a that's one reason i feel like i've had success as a composer especially since as, as, as i've been ghostwriting since i was 18 years old um i have to sound like other composers i have to mm -hmm. fit within another composer's idiom and their language mm -hmm. and i know how i have to know what their their idiosyncrasies are as a yeah. composer and like and the better you get at that, like the more work you get. So like I had naturally had this reward reward system in place where like I was monetarily and like verbally rewarded for doing a good job. And when you're 18 years old, you're still developing. And like that becomes part of your intuition and your, and your brain. And you realize that's normal. And then I got to a point, I, I'm still doing some ghostwriting now, but like I'm getting to a point where I'm realizing like, okay, this is not something I want to be doing forever. But yeah. Um, but it is was a valuable experience. I had to learn how to write like other people. But even before I was ghostwriting, I was like I was I said at the very beginning, I was talking about Haydn symphonies. I was I went and picked apart all those Haydn symphonies. I went down to the library. I sat there with them, listening to them with headphones and just with a pencil, writing all the stuff in the library copies. And yeah. um, so whoever whoever went in there and got that Haydn symphony after <laughs> me had to sit there and listen, had to erase all the wrong things I wrote yeah, yeah. down as like a 12 or 13 year old kid. That's but, um, but it was immensely helpful in me as like, I had to learn how Haydn constructed things and it started to, to turn me on to thinking about form and how he put things in certain orders mm -hmm. and how he used harmony and like, and then 
again, when you get so involved in studying a certain composer and all of their works, especially if you just go into, into Haydn's, you know, canon of, of pieces and then you go, okay, subgenre symphonies and then you go subgenre the London symphonies and then you get sort of into all these little things and you start to understand the pieces and you start to see how their music evolves over the years. And then you, that helps you understand how to create something or recreate something is because, you know, if, if I went and wrote a Haydn symphony now, like it wouldn't get much attention because it's already been done. Mm -hmm. And, and what people are most interested in about Haydn symphonies is as he wrote so many of them, they look for the symphonies with special little things that he does different. They find something where he does a new form structure or where he breaks away from a typical harmony usage mm -hmm. Because all great composers and all great artists in general are tr constantly trying to evolve. They're not trying to, it's like an entertainer having the same gimmick over and the same punchline and the same catchphrase yeah. all the time. It's just like you want to evolve and, and find something new so people don't get tired of you. Yeah, and yeah. especially when you're a court composer, like, um, and you have patrons like back in the day, like Beethoven and Mozart and everything, you have to stay relevant. It's, it's a, that's, mm -hmm. that's something you don't have to do all the time. Now as a composer, you're, you're, allowed to be more artistic but yeah. back in the day when music was such a relevant thing especially instrumental classical music you had to stay relevant you had to you know you were servicing a, a court of people or a society or a town and they were you they you were their only music they didn't have spotify or apple yeah. music they had they had to go if they ever heard music and most of the populace didn't because they were just they just heard folk music but if you ever heard a classical piece of music, if you were in Linz or wherever in Austria, you were going to hear Mozart, you were going to hear Haydn, mm -hmm. and that's all they heard. And if you had to listen to nothing but Katy Perry all over all the time, you would get tired of that. <laughs> and like even yeah. people like her try to evolve and like make their sound different. It's mm -hmm. still it's still them underneath, but yeah. you have to change what you're saying. You have to change how you sound. Like. And that's important in being an artist or, or you can't communicate the same things over and over again. You have to change your process and then change the output through that process. Yeah, and then I, that's, that's what is intriguing to the listener. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what makes, you know, this Butler's blunders appealing as it's not expected <laughs> as a new piece of music. Yeah, exactly. It's like I was saying, it's, it has its hands in both cookie jars, you know, it has yeah. the, the authenticity. And uh, who doesn't like two cookies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, but then it's like one is good, but <laughs> then the the question is then like what type of ensemble do you see would be in the market for playing a piece like Butler's Blunders? Like do you think that a civil Honestly movie... nobody. But um well, I don't well, that's something that Steven and I kind of get at a little bit with with this show is the the accessibility of the music and trying to bring it to a wider mm -hmm. audience. So the question was going to be is like it, do you think a civil war reenacting band would play this or is it too new ver then like versus like would maybe a collegiate orchestral brass ensemble or brass quintet, maybe play it as like their way yeah. of learning about, about the style, but still playing like a new mm -hmm. piece of music. Yeah. And that's sort of, that's that's bridging the gap and like and i'm i'm a person of of utility when it comes to music is that my music does not have to always be heard in its prime form is like 
in my background as an orchestrator and arranger, I'm constantly morphing music into new formats so they can be digestible by people in different scenarios. Is this like, you know, John Williams who doesn't needs no publicity or any sort of any sort of help mm-hmm. being relevant. Even he has band arrangements and other kinds of arrangements which which either makes things simpler or translate them into band or yeah. band into orchestra or vice versa or, in, or into like brass band. Um, but I'm sure even John Williams, if a, if a Civil War brass band came to him and had enough money or just like had enough connections or enough interest to him, he would do it. He could adapt something he written like Quidditch fanfare or like some other brass piece he's written. Yeah. He would go, well, I'll, I'll translate it into civil war brass band. And if you play it or play it or not, like, there you go. Like I can, it's my music is just notes. Mm -hmm. I don't have to have them on a particular set of instruments. Like Granger was like that. He would make very different editions of all of his music. And it would just, he would just adapt it into different flexible instrumentation so that anybody could play it Mm -hmm. because he's, Mm -hmm. he said in his, in his own writings that, his music is heard in the line writing and in, and then the harmonies. It's not in the, this, the, you know, this untouchable one piece. And that's how Wagner was. He goes, Wagner would have never translated his music into anything other than a 120 piece orchestra. <laughs> like, but that's just the ego right there is, is you thinking that like, if I don't have the 120 pieces of the orchestra, I'm not going to sound good. Like yeah, if you're a good composer, you can make, two instruments sound good you can make one instrument sound good and that's what you have to teach com- young composers is make one instrument sound good don't yeah. write the piece for the civil war brass band learn how to write one piece for the cornet and learn how and in that make it a study in how the cornet works and like how you play it and how it and then learn how it fits into an ensemble and what roles it plays and what notes are easy and what notes are hard and like you know and then in your era you have the whole different mechanical aspects of what the instruments can do is because they are they're whole different valve mechanisms and different physical constructions of these instruments you have sax horns and cornets and all these different instruments mm-hmm. you know that existed at the time until they were boiled down into what we know in the western canon as the orchestral instruments you know mm-hmm. in in you know the ones that made it through like mm-hmm. the tuba has such a long diverse legacy because it comes from the serpent the ophlocyte the the sax horn all these things that were substitute bass instruments because we didn't have a bass brass instrument a true one yeah. like a contrabass one mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah if you if you if you're a composer of the thinking of being adaptable being adaptable opens you up to more opportunities and if you're going to be a composer and, and you have to find opportunities you have to be adaptable and mm-hmm. i in in its form now maybe less than 0.001 percent of people would want to buy butler's blunders but i didn't write it to be purchased or to mm-hmm. be uh, even played it was just a, a study it's just like yeah. what could i do with this with this limitation given to me in this funny little c- contest i give myself every year <laughs> where there's no reward other than me writing a piece and then people getting a free piece it's just um so he has that score and like he can do whatever he wants with it but but you know someday it'll still be in my head and i can maybe draw it out and make it a concert band piece or a brass mm-hmm. band piece i can make it longer mm-hmm. i can make it shorter if you know if i wouldn't know why we want to do that but <laughs> there's there's versatility in the message and like yeah, yeah for sure. um the message can be the same but 
the delivery can be different. Like I can say the same thing a million different ways and it'll have different meanings, but like the words are also the same. The notes are still the same, mm-hmm. but um, it just has different impact too. Yeah. It's like, uh, but if a, if a really good civil war band could wanted to buy it and play it, they could probably play it. Like it might have some difficulties they're not used to, to dealing with because they play pretty standard fare. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would press the boundaries of what they're comfortable with, but it, I don't think it would be impossible to play, but uh, cause it's all comes from a place of practicality. Like it's not, yeah. it's, it's not, the rhythms are not hard. The notes are not hard. It's just a different way of approaching what they've been doing a certain way for so long. Yeah. And that's the, the, the original question addresses the topic of, of something that I think is just like nothing ever dies. It just stops trying to adapt and it stops trying to be relevant. It's just like, and your, your goal is that you want to bring this thing of, of antiquity or history into relevance again. And I, and I would argue that it's still relevant because there's thousands of people that do it. It's just, it's just not as popular as, you know, TikTok now. It's just like it, it's it's as popular as it's ever going to be there might be a resurgence in it and like ragtime came back for a decade and like you you never know like people go people are always looking backwards to find something that they maybe overlooked or didn't see when they were there you know mm-hmm. you know when you when you grow up and you become an adult you kind of look back at your childhood and sort of notice things and and find things that you didn't think about back then because your brain has a new software in it like <laughs> you can reassess all that old data and that's kind of like a point of our own human misery is sometimes we, that can destroy us by looking back too much and like dwelling on things that happened or conversations that you should have said something different or like mm-hmm. things that should have gone a different way. Or now that you have this new information, you would have made a different choice, but like, mm-hmm. but yeah, with the civil war thing, like I would adapt that in a heartbeat. If somebody, somebody gave me 20 bucks, I'd do it. It's just not, it's not a hard thing to do, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. when the piece is already written. All I have to do is, and nowadays you can just go into finale and change the stabs. And then like, I'll just pick each note and make sure they all fit in the instruments and like yeah. take that E flat cornet part and put it on either a piccolo trumpet and B flat or on an E flat trumpet. Like yeah. there's, that's the great thing about, and the bad thing about brass is that there's so many different keys instruments is because they, they come from a history of like such a sordid history of like, French horns used to have different crooks on to play with. Right. So they would have to like to play natural horn and like, okay, this piece is an E flat dust off the E flat crook. And like, yeah, yeah. then they would change them and they would have, and you get into Bruckner and they're still doing that. And you have the lower horns on like a different p- pitch. And then like the top horns on different pitches and you have mixings of them mm-hmm. just to get yeah. the right notes you want. It's just like, it's such a funny, but such a like, a cool thing to look at how they got what they wanted out of what they had back then. Because like you look at the old drum corps stuff and they had G bugles, the whole family of G bugles. And some of them had no valves, one valve, a valve and a rotor. And then they eventually they had three and you might as well just be a trumpet or or a cornet at that point. But, um, but still they were making all that wonderful music back then out of whatever valves they had. They didn't matter. Like, and, and they devise their own system and, and technique of dealing with that. And then you get master practitioners of those techniques. And like, that's, that's what we study is we look at those people that took what was there, you know, and you have Mozart and Beethoven, like they, they're working with brass sections that don't have valves. And like, 
Beethoven gets to a point where he's just like, I've had it. I'm going to have trombones in this symphony. I need a, I need a chromatic instrument, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's as dramatic as to have trombones, like in any piece, like the power they can bring to something, any brass instrument can. Um, but, but yeah, it's just like nothing ever dies. It just stops trying to be relevant or it stops trying to adapt. Mm-hmm. or or even be alive and all it needs is a breath of life to be brought back into it and resurgence and in interest some people might look at the butler's blunders and go well this isn't really something i could play with my band but once you just put it on the stands and start hacking away at it and don't expect it to sound good right away then you're actually in, engaged in the process of making it happen rather than you know saying it's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And guess what? You're better for the attempt. You might, you're getting to play a piece that's a little bit harder than you're used to. Yeah. And then you might take your own playing to another level. But this is for just sure. me being I, like maybe positive about everything and being idealistic or, um, you know, whatever, trying to find the silver lining in all of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like, because yeah. I would give the, I would give a copy of a Butler's Blunders away for free. I gave you this score for free. I just, mm-hmm. like, to me, it's a dispensable piece. Like I, I didn't make it for the purpose of making money. I made it as an exercise. And if somebody wants that, they can have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if somebody plays it, great. Like that's great for me. But I think it'll it would be just as educational for them as it was for me. And like, um, not everything you have to do has to end in success. And that's another thing. Like, that's like the American way is like we have to win and we have to be the best. And like, sometimes it's okay just to chill and just learn from mistakes and actively seek to make mistakes that aren't harmful to other people, but ones that you can actually learn from. Yeah. And it's like, and it's okay not to be the best because like, even if you are the best, somebody else is going to come along and be better than you is this. You can't stay at the top forever. Mm-hmm. But, um, sure. and in our pursuit for perfection and all this stuff that we can't do, like we just get better as individuals as like, because we, we hold ourselves to any kind of standard outside of, you know, what's good enough for us. <laughs> no matter what your dream is, you have to be flexible in, in it and be open to whatever comes to you in the process of fulfilling that dream is because like, it's important for us to dream is like, we need hope to get us through life. It's what keeps us alive. It's, it's what made Elliot Carter live to be 104 years old. It's just like, mm-hmm. I mean, he was composing up until his last days, but like, mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe what kept him alive was that like, he had a purpose in life. He, he woke up every day and said, I'm working on a piece. I'm writing something. Somebody's asking me to write a piece. So you're still alive. You're still relevant. Like people are still yeah. interested. And like, that's the same thing. Like civil war brass bands are two, almost 200 years old now. Um, but they could still be relevant as long as people still want to engage with it. It's just mm-hmm. not, it's not dead unless we kill it, you know? Yeah. yeah um, and obviously I'm sitting here talking for two hours with you. It's, it's not dead. If, if, if I'm willing to put this kind of time into it, yeah. you know, maybe if I was a composer that with the turtleneck and the attitude, <laughs> then I would have been like, hell no, I'm not going to be on some early American, <laughs> not going to get up early and, you know, do a, do an early American brass band podcast. But to me, this is important. So I gladly mm-hmm. give my time to it. It's a pleasure for me to like, I have all this information in my head and it's, it's a lot of fun to talk to people who, who get what I'm, I have in my brain, you know, like I can spill it out to you two and then you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate what's being said and you can add on to it and, and correct or amend whatever I'm saying. And like, and that's, what's fun to me is it's like, 
that's what's worth going to college for is just to like interact with other people who care about what you care about. And then you're exposed to all these new ideas and perspectives and, and methods. And that's, what's really addicting about education and, and learning in general is just like, it's just an excuse for us to be humans and interact with each other. What you, what you've been saying, you know, really rings true. You know, like nothing has, nothing yet has like reached its final form, you know, like music no, is never. still evolving Until and, especially with something like this with like, we're, we're talking about something very specific from the past, you know, like a 19th century brass bands and whatnot, mm -hmm. but that, you know, base idea has evolved and inspired, you know, three pieces that you've written and who knows countless other pieces that other people have written. I'm not done and yet even. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah there might be more and there definitely will be probably. Yeah. There's the right. teaser. Still evolving, still more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's really, I mean, it's really, it's up to, you know, the people, who are playing the music and the people who are writing the music to, mm -hmm. like you said before, you know, take down that wall that we perceive as being there, but it really isn't there, you know, and talk to everyone nope. and, and, you know, share ideas and evolve it that way. And um, yeah. So I think, how's this for a segue? How can people get in touch with you if they like <laughs> what they heard today on the episode? Like what, where, where can people find more about you more of your pieces and get in contact with you if they're interested in talking with you further about this stuff you just look up my name anthony o'toole composer and you'll find my youtube channel if you just google my name i've i've spent the last five or six years really honing my web presence and ma and making a site that has as much of my music as i can get up there there's 120 plus pieces of mine nice. and i've i've boiled it down to the ones that i want people to play mm -hmm. um so that's what I've been getting. And I put, make score videos. You can, you don't have to buy the score. You can go and look at any of my pieces or just contact me through my site. Um, or if you just want to continue it, like the chat here, just message me on Facebook, look up my name, Anthony O'Toole. And I have a, a page for my composer page. And then you can just talk to me as a regular person on my, my actual account. Um, and then I have my website, which is www.anthonyotoolmusic.weebly.com. I have, I'm not a big shot yet. I can't afford a domain <laughs> name. So I have a free, a free website, but I don't let that get in the way of, uh, of me getting in touch with people mm -hmm. or people yeah. discovering me on their own time, which is how I like it to be. You know, if, if you discover my music, I want it to be in an organic setting like this, not with me jamming it down your throat. Is this like, you want to reach a conducive audience and, and you want people to come to things of their own time and their own terms. And if, if, you heard me talk or heard these three pieces and, and you feel interested enough to explore more, all of those resources are there. And if you never want to hear from me again, that's perfectly fine too. Is this, <laughs> there's, there's billions of people on this planet and I am not, tr I'm not trying to please all of them. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. And we'll have links to all those uh, sites and whatnot that you mentioned up on our website. Uh, in mm -hmm. the show notes for this episode. And I would personally highly recommend uh, Anthony's YouTube channel. I actually, now that I have it pulled up and I'm looking through some of your old videos, I've watched a few of the score study episodes that you do, like before mm -hmm. I was exposed to playing your music, you know, at, at Mason through the 2B Phoneme Ensemble and stuff. I'm scrolling through here and being like, oh yeah, that's marked as watched on my, <laughs> on my YouTube <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> account. So um, those are great, you know, and very Thank valuable you. resources. So um, yeah. yeah, I highly recommend that. Yeah. Thank yeah, you really so much. Like I said, it. we can't thank you enough for the, the time, the, 
amount of interest and, and insight and experience, all, all the good things that, that you were able to lend to our discussion today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you again so much to Anthony O'Toole for speaking with Stephen and I today on the Early American Brass Band podcast. It's really cool to be able to talk about music that pertains to the time period that we're always living in, but uh, you know, with a modern kind of twist to it. So we hope you enjoyed Anthony's music as much as we do. Yeah, and if you're interested, uh, we will have links to his website up on our on our website <laughs> in the show notes. That way, if you uh, want to purchase anything or reach out to him uh, to talk or maybe commission something, that'd be cool. Um, so we'll, anyway, we'll have links for that stuff up on our website so you can get in touch with him. As always, feel free to support the show if you wish through either our Patreon account or by ordering some merch through the Teespring store both listed on our website. We are hopefully going to be getting some new designs and some some cool things going up on that store soon, so feel free to check that out and help support the show. This episode's featured album is not really an album. It's more of a SoundCloud account. (laughs) This episode's featured SoundCloud is actually Anthony O'Toole's. If you go to soundcloud.com slash anthony-o'toole, that's O-T-O-O-L-E. Then you'll be able to listen to a bunch of Anthony's compositions that he has recordings of on there. A lot of really great music that if you enjoyed the, the three pieces that we played for you today, you'll get a lot more of that quality writing over there on that SoundCloud account. So go ahead over there and check that out. We'll also have it linked on our show notes page as well as the description in the video if you're watching this on YouTube. Thank you very much. We will see you next episode when we discuss Civil War bandsmen as stretcher bearers and a part of the Ambulance Corps with Kyle Dalton, who works with the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, Maryland. So we're really excited to share that episode with you guys in two weeks from the release of this episode, and we look forward to talking to you then. Take care. Thank you.